Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. Okay, right. So, hello. Um, So we're continuing our series looking at the life of Abraham. And we'll just... Should we just carry on? Should I carry on? Okay, we'll just carry on. Right, so why are we looking at the life of Abraham? Let me um, tell you a bit about myself. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start again. Okay, so why are we looking at the life of Abraham? About this time last year, um, my, my wife, Naomi, um, uh, became pregnant, and we were really, really excited to be having a baby. Um, and at that point, everything in our life seemed to be going kind of according to the type of plan we had. We we had this idea that um, we'd try and have a baby in England. Then um, what was going to happen was I was going to uh, work to the end of my contract. And after about six months after the baby was born, our, our plan was to move abroad to Turkey. Um, and so we're delighted that that this that Nay fell pregnant because it seemed to be just in time to make all this plan happen. Um, but of course, as, as many of you know, um, a few months later we discovered that Nay had a miscarriage, um, and and then after and, then, and, and now we're kind of a year on, um, and we're still Nay's still not pregnant. Um, we're not at all sure when it is we're going to go abroad, although we still really want to to work in that direction. Um, and it's all looking a lot more uncertain and confusing. My job's about to come to an end in September, um, and I don't know what I'm going to be doing next. Um, why am I telling you all this? Well, I simply want to make the point, which I probably don't need to make, um, but that life is hard, that it often goes wrong. And often we're kind of thrown into confusion, and we feel like we're lacking direction. Sometimes it goes wrong because it just happens. Sometimes it goes wrong because it's our fault and we've made some really bad mistakes. Um, and that's life. That, that's what it's like. And many of you will know that much better than I do. And the reason Abraham is looked upon by the th- three of the world's great religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, is that it's as if he had a kind of anchor in his life. An anchor that, that he was holding on to, something that he was holding on to, or something that was holding on to him, that meant however much he was buffeted and bashed by the kind of the waves to continue the metaphor of, of life, even though he wasn't, as it turns out, as you read the story, an especially competent sailor, um, however much he was buffeted, he wasn't, um, he wasn't swept out to sea. He wasn't smashed against the rocks. There was something that he had to hold on to, something that was holding on to him that meant he wasn't swept away. And we really need to know what that is, don't we? Because life throws all kinds of things at us, and we need to have something to hold on to. It was so um, sad this week to read about Amy Winehouse and um, her tragic death. And however you interpret what it was that led to her death, one thing we've got to realise is that despite what our society tells us, despite 
what our teachers in school tell us even, what television tells us. Success, money, talent, popularity, beauty. They're they're not good enough. They don't hold us firm, and in some cases, they're the very things that lead to our destruction. So we really need to look at the life of Abraham and ask the question, what was his anchor? What was holding him firm? What was holding him secure? Now, I want to acknowledge straight off that on the face of it, this chapter doesn't look that promising in this respect. The first half is all about Abraham's doubts and and the way he's so uncertain and his fears and his anxieties. And the second half is just plain weird. It's bizarre. And we... What it, I mean, what is going on there? So, but I really want us to see that this is a wonderful passage. It is just astonishing the way God responds to Abraham's doubts. So this is what I'm, I'm praying we're going to see as a result of looking at this. So we met Abraham um, back in chapter 12. Um, and we meet him as God calls him to leave his land, his land of Ur, and go to the land that God will show him. And God makes Abraham a promise. He says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So it's a great promise they made, they made to Abraham. And what you've got to understand is that this, this chapter, this chapter 12, where God makes this promise is the start of God's great plan of redemption for our world. It's where he starts to unfold his plan to make a world gone bad good again. This is where we first have that dazzling ray of hope in the Bible, that our world, which is so so good in some ways and yet so messed up, will be renewed, will be made good again. And this chapter, where God calls Abraham to leave his homeland, is where it all starts. And entailed in God's promise to Abraham is promise of offspring and promise of land. Because that's what you need to make a nation. You need offspring and you need land. And so in chapter 15, we, get to, we, we see Abraham um, a, a little way on into the story. But so far, he is 80 years old. And he's got neither. He's got neither children or land. And so even though he's left his home, he's left everything, he's left all his family, he's gone to this land that God's shown him, he's still got nothing to show for it. And he's probably starting to feel a bit stupid. It doesn't help that he's called Abram. Abram means great father. So you can imagine how awkward that is. He introduces himself, I'm great father. As an 80-year-old, wow, so how many children have you got? None yet. <laughs> 80 years old. I had a friend actually called Omega. He was from Zimbabwe. And he was, um, he was the ninth child in his family. And his parents um, obviously thought to himself when he was born, we'll draw a, a line here. And so they called him Omega, which is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Um, but unfortunately, he, he had a younger brother. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what he was called. I meant to ask him. But Abraham's name's even worse. Great father, and yet he's not got uh, a child to show for his great name. He's, got, he's not got anything to show for God's great promise of him, promise for him that he'd become a great nation. 
So there's no prospect of descendants at the moment. And also, the prospect of land isn't looking that good either. Though he's there, though he's in Canaan, he's feeling pretty insecure there. Last chapter, he took on four marauding kings to rescue his nephew Lot, who had got into trouble with them. And though this was a daring act, and though, though he kind of attacked them militarily, and he, and he got back his, his nephew, he's probably very fearful of what the repercussions of this daring intervention will be. And so he's feeling pretty insecure. And so that's the background to chapter 15. And what we see here are, first of all, Abraham's doubts, and then we see God's response to Abraham's doubts. So that's what we're going to see, Abraham's doubts, um, God's response to Abraham's doubts, and then we're going to um, think a bit about the implications for us. But first of all, Abraham's doubts. So after this, after Abraham came back, having rescued his brother Lot, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now this this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, is unique in the whole of the first five books of the Bible. Okay? It doesn't occur anywhere else in the first five books. So this is it happens it happens to the kind of prophets later on in the Old Testament, but this is the only time this happens in the first five books. So this is a kind of unprecedentedly um, clear and vivid revelation from God. Abraham hears this voice, probably audibly, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And what does Abraham say? Does he say, Well, thanks, God. You know I was um, beginning to lose it there, but that, that really helps, thanks. That I feel much better now. No, he doesn't. He comes straight back at God with his doubts. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Now that you mention this reward, how can you give me a reward when I don't even have a child? I don't even have an heir. And what does God say? I know what I'd say if I was, if I was God. I'd get really annoyed. I know that because when, I, when Nay says to me, um, can you do this? And I say, yeah, I'll do it. And then she'll say to me, you will remember to do that, won't you? And I get really annoyed at her. I say, I said I'll do it. Of course I'll do it. And then, of course, I forget. (laughs) And yet I still get annoyed with Nay when she says that to me. But fortunately for for us, for for the whole world, I'm not God. Um, And God's not like that. God is patient and he is kind. And he's, he's just... He, just, he, he reaffirms his promises to us when we express our doubts to him. And what happens is this really beautiful um, scene where he says he took Abraham outside and said, look up at the heavens. You can almost see God putting his arm around Abraham, taking him outside, saying, look up at the heavens. Can you see the stars? Can you count them? No, you can't count them. That's how many your offspring will be. It's really beautiful. And yet still, Abraham has doubts. First of all, though, he says, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed it, he accepted it, but then he comes back at God again, verse 8, look, he says, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? So first thing we've got to realise about this, Abraham has just had this unprecedentedly clear vision of the Lord saying, do not fear 
Abraham is the kind of example to us all of faith. He is looked upon by these three great religions as the kind of father of faith. And yet here he is having some real doubts. And so we've got to realise that doubts are very likely going to be part of our relationship with God. If Abraham had doubts, we're going to have doubts. Okay, so there's something inevitable about doubts. But look at the way God responds. There's this wonderful balance. He doesn't, first of all, he doesn't say to Abraham, how dare you question me, you silly little old man. He doesn't say that. But at the same time, he doesn't say to Abraham, well, you know, we all have doubts. Um, it's just life. Now, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't kind of rebuke, he doesn't kind of um, uh, shout at Abraham, but also, but he, does, he doesn't leave him in his doubts. He challenges him. He says to Abraham, come out, look at the stars. He reaffirms his promise. Remember Thomas, when he meets, when he meets Jesus, Thomas says, unless I see the scars in the risen Lord Jesus' hands, I will not believe him. And what does Jesus do? He shows him his hands. He says, look, Thomas, put your hands in my scars. Feel them. See, it is I. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of shout at Thomas and say, you mustn't have these doubts. But at the same time, he doesn't leave him in his doubts. He, almost, he rebukes him. He says, stop doubting and believe. So Tim Keller says, um, I should say actually, this, this sermon, I've, I've, I've got almost all of this sermon from, from Tim Keller. Um, I just want to acknowledge that. <laughs> I think it's okay. I asked Nay whether she thought it was okay, and she said, at least you know it will be good. <laughs> so anyway. So he says, he says it's um, completely different from the conservative religious mindset and the se- liberal secular mindset with regard to doubt. So the strict kind of conservative religious mind says that you must not ever doubt and you must not express doubts. And so it creates communities where doubt is not acceptable. You can't have questions. You can't come and express honest difficulties and emotional struggles with what you're hearing. But of course the problem with this is it's so fake. It's so inauthentic. And also, it smacks of deceit. The only thing that, has, uh, that, that, that needs to fear doubt and questions is lies. If what you believe is true, there is always room for doubts and questions. And it's so not what the Bible's like. Read the Psalms, read Job, read this story. Doubts are okay. You can come to God with your doubts. But neither is it like the kind of secular mind, either which sees doubt as the only way of having any intellectual credibility or emotional maturity. Look at 15 verse 6 again. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's not Abraham's doubt that's praised, it's his belief in God. And the important thing to realise here is that it's not just belief. It's not just the fact that Abraham believed, it's that he believed God. Because you see, we all believe something. We all put our faith in something. That's not in question. Even when we doubt, 
It's because we're believing our own experience, our own judgments, our own feelings more than we're believing God. It's not that you believe, it's who you believe. And Abraham believes God. Even when his experience, even when his feelings are testifying against him, he says, but I will believe God. I will not listen to those things. I will believe God. So God is gentle and kind with us in our doubts. But ultimately, he wants us to believe not in ourselves, but in him. And this is what all that happens next is all about. Okay, So when the narrator says Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, all that happens next is explaining what he was saying there. So let's have a look. And this, I just, this is just amazing what happens here. Even though it's weird and it's hard to understand, it's really amazing. So um, Abraham says to God, how can I know? How can I know? And God says, go and get, this is verse 9, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Okay, so what I want us to see, first of all, is that God tells Abraham to go and get these animals... But Abraham knew exactly what to do with them, okay? God didn't tell Abraham to cut them up and lay them in two columns, but that's what Abraham did. So Abraham knew what was going on. God knew what was going on. The only thing is we don't know what's going on. So (laughs) what was going on? And I think what we've got to understand, so so what's happening is when, when God told Abraham to go and get these animals, Abraham knew that God was going to make a covenant with him. Okay, that is a kind of solemn oath, a promise, a contract. Now, to understand this, we've got to realise that in some ways we're similar to Abraham, in some ways we're different. Because we have contracts these days, don't we? We make contracts, and what we're saying when we're making a contract is when you kind of sign on the dotted line, you're saying to that person who you're asking to sign, you're saying, I need to know you're going to do this. I need to know you're going to do this. How can I know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? And you say, please sign here. And the piece of paper they're signing has all the kind of things they're promising to do. And what what society recognises is that that person's being held accountable, that he will keep his word. Because if he doesn't keep his word, there's going to be legal repercussions. There's going to be a cost to not keeping his word. Now, we're a, we are a written culture, but Abraham lived in an oral culture. So before there was a written culture, before we had pieces of paper to write on, they had an oral culture. And in an oral culture, what they did is they acted out what was going to happen if you didn't keep your promise. You see? And they're saying, basically, if I don't keep my promise, this is what's going to happen to me. They kind of acted out. So Abraham took the animals... He cut them in two, he spread them out along the thing, and then what they'd have used to have done is walk down through between the animals, saying what they were going to do, and what they were saying is, if I don't do that, I am going to become like these animals that have been cut in two, that the vultures are coming down and eating. So you see this in um, uh, Jeremiah 34. And uh, here a king has promised 
um, to release a load of slaves. He's promised God that he will release slaves, and he's not done it. Um, And he says, um, the men, this is God speaking to this king, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. Okay, so you see? So he's saying, that's what's going to happen to me if I don't do what I'm promising. So it's pretty vivid, isn't it? Maybe next time you want to make a contract, so don't do the old pen and paper thing. <laughs> let's, do, let's do this instead. I'll probably get better service. <laughs> so when we make an agreement, we need a guarantee, and this was the way they made guarantees. They acted out. They acted out these consequences. So verse, um, uh, where is it? Verse 18, where it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant. Literally, it's, uh, he cut a covenant. It's just the way they did it. One other, one other thing, one other bit of background, is that this was especially applied when a king had just captured some nations and he needed to ensure the loyalty of his kind of vassal subjects. So what they'd do is he'd make them, he'd kind of cut the animals in half, and he'd make them kind of walk through the pieces and say, that's how I'm going to know that you're going to be loyal to me, because if you're not loyal to me, I'm going to cut you in pieces like those animals you've just walked between. And the key thing is, is that it's always the vassal, um, the vassal servants who walk through the pieces, and never the king himself. Okay, the king didn't have to, he just, he just won the war. The very fact that he was giving them a covenant was, was generous in itself. Um, so that's, that's what happened. So God was taking on this kind of human cultural form. He was kind of accommodating himself to Abraham, to this form he realized he knew. And he was saying, this is how you're going to know. But two amazing things happen here. Two amazing things happen. What are these two things? Let's read um, from verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So, it was night time anyway, but it says this thick and dreadful darkness, this kind of oppressive blackness came over Abraham and weighed down on him, and it was dreadful in that it, was, it caused fear and dread in him. And then verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. So this blazing torch and smoking firepot, these same words used to describe them, apparently exactly the same words used to describe what happened when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and God appeared before him. There was fire, there was smoke. It's also the same thing, the same way they're described in the Exodus, where the people left Egypt and before them was, by day was a pillar of fire, but a pillar of smoke, and before them at night there was a pillar of fire. So what is it? It's a sign of God's presence. It's symbols of, of, of God's presence. And then look, these, this smoking firepot and blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. What does that mean? Who passed through the pieces? Not Abraham, but God. God passed through the pieces and he made his promise to Abraham, you shall inherit this land, I shall bless you. 
This could only mean one thing. God was saying, if I don't do this, I will be torn apart. What does that even mean? The immortal dies. I will be cut off if I don't keep my promise to you. But that's not the only thing. If, if that was all that happened, I don't think Abraham's doubts would have been allayed. Or at least my doubts wouldn't have been allayed. Because, you know, I don't think I doubt God that much. My doubt comes from doubting myself. I think, okay, I'm pretty sure God's going to keep his side of the bargain. But the problem is, I'm not sure I can keep my side of the bargain. I know God could be God to me, but I'm not sure I can be the pers- a, pers- a kind of God's person. He can be my God, but I can't be God's person. And so the first thing is who passes through the pieces is God. The second thing is who doesn't pass through the pieces. So, verse 19, sorry, verse 18, it says, After this fire and smoke had passed through the pieces, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That was it. God passed through the pieces and the covenant was made. And so what it means is God's saying, if I don't keep my part of the bargain, I will pay the cost, I will be cut off and cut up. But also, if you don't meet your half of the bargain, I will be cut off and cut up. I will bless you. I will be your shield. I will be your reward. Whatever happens, whether I fail or whether you fail, I will absorb the cost for you. And we know what that cost was, don't we? Abraham didn't know. Augustine, St. Augustine used to say of the Old Testament that it's like a kind of um, a darkened room with all the furniture in it. Okay, it's a room full of furniture, but, we're, but it's kind of dark and you can't really see it. And you need the kind of light of the New Testament to shine in and see what's been there all along. Abraham had no idea, but we know the cost. Centuries later, darkness came down again on Mark Carvery. Isaiah 53 verse 6 said, he was cut off from the land of the living. That's covenant language. The cost of breaking the covenant was paid by Jesus. He cried out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son was cut off from his father. He was cut in two. God himself was separated. And as Jesus died, the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. God's saying this is a promise that is unconditional. No matter whether you fail, I have taken the cost of your failures. I will be your righteousness. I will be your shield. I will be your great reward. You can believe in me. And so this is what led Paul to say in Galatians chapter 4, and this kind of ties it together. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, first of all. Um, Sorry, not 4, chapter 3. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. And then verse 13, Paul dares to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the covenant curse, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. God took our curse so that the blessing promised to Abraham can come to us, so that we can say of God, he is my shield, he is my great reward, he is my righteousness. Even though I fail him, He is mine and I am his because he did it for me. He went through the pieces so that I didn't have to. There are two types of people here, probably. There's always always two types of people, aren't there? Some of you will be asleep, some of you will be awake. (laughs) But some people here will have never made a commitment to God, will never have put their faith in God. And it might be because you say to yourself, I've got so many questions and I've got so many doubts and I'm just not sure I can live with it. I'm not sure I can live up to what I'm being called to or stick with it. But do you see what this passage says? This is the whole point. Every other religion, every other way of living makes you go through the pieces. Everything else you put your faith in means that it's down to you, and ultimately it could fail. We talked about Abraham's anchor. Abraham's anchor was the promises of God, and they never fail. Everything else, everything else you put your faith in could fail, whether it's your family, your success, These things don't last. Your looks, I'm not going to be this good looking forever. (laughs) That wasn't going to be funny. (laughs) We say, this will be my shield. This will be my reward. But those things fail. The only one who is our shield and reward will never fail because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. He's gone through the pieces for us. Is God's. And... If you're a Christian, then it's so easy to forget this. Although we can say in our heads that we believe God, we can say that I have put my trust in God, sometimes our anchor just doesn't go down far enough. It's still kind of floating in the water. All the things in our life that ebb and flow, and we've got to get our anchor down into the promises of God. We have this, um, we have this vending machine in our, in our coffee area, and we, we call it a fruit machine because there's no guarantee when you put your money in that you're going to get anything out. Um, that's it. it makes break time a bit more exciting. And you've got to kind of put the coin in and then bang it because sometimes the, the Mars bar or whatever kind of comes to the end, of the, the end of the little lever and then it just totters there and doesn't fall down. So you've got to keep on banging it so it falls down. And it's like that with us. 
The gospel goes into our heads, but it doesn't get down. It doesn't start to play out in the way we respond to life emotionally, because we put our security in other things. And so we've got to almost bang it into our heads. Both Nay and I are seeing a counsellor at the moment, because we've both identified areas in our life where we realise that the gospel's not getting down from our heads to our hearts, and so we're, we're trying to work on these areas to make sure the penny drops. And we've got to say to ourselves, I'm not going to put my security in the fact I'm a good person. I'm not a good person. I'm not successful. I'm not useful. That, that really hurts me. I so want to be useful. I so want to be um, needed and, and, and make a difference. We say, I'm not any of those things. I'm not useful. I'm not successful. I'm not good, but I'm God's. And he is mine. He is my shield. He is my reward. And we've got to keep on saying that to ourselves until the penny drops. I'm going to finish there. Let me read to you um, Hebrews chapter 6. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your abundant grace. Thank you, Lord, that you went through the pieces for us. You fulfilled the demands of the covenant for us by taking the penalty for our failure on yourself on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that when we put our trust in you, you credit Christ's righteousness to us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would lodge our faith in you all the more securely. We pray that we would put our faith not in our own abilities, not in the other things in our life that make us feel secure or um, rewarded, but that we would put our anchor firmly in you so that we can hold firm during all that life throws us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.